This is What's the Deal, Grosiel, the podcast that explores the people, places, history, and events that make Grosiel unique. I'm your host, Ben Fote. Now, this intro may seem like a communication breakdown, but I assure you that in the end, I'll bring it on home. There's this story that I'd heard that left me dazed and confused. The story is of this tangerine-shaped blimp built on Grosiel way more than 10 years gone. In fact, it's been almost 100 years since it was built. I'd lost hope in finding someone who could talk about it until I read my employee newsletter from the Henry Ford several weeks ago. A coworker had written a book about Michigan aviation history. I bought the book and read through it, but Grosiel didn't get a mention. What a heartbreaker. Well, I didn't let that deter me. I still contacted the author, and he said he'd be giving a talk at the Grosiel Historical Society on October 3rd and would love to talk about this thing I was interested in, the ZMC2. That was great. And this conversation is the result. Now, if you'll indulge me, I'll only toss a couple more song references in after our conversation before explaining. But first, Barry Levine. Well, my guest for this episode is Barry Levine. Barry has written a book called Michigan Aviation, People and Places That Changed History. While it doesn't mention the aviation history of Grosiel specifically, he'll be giving a talk at the Grosiel Historical Society next month. Thank you for joining me, Barry, and thank you for stretching a bit to talk about some of Grosiel's and Michigan's lesser-known aviation history. Well, sure thing, Ben. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, let's start with your, your latest book, Michigan Aviation. How do you tackle such a broad topic, and what, what compelled you to write it? It's a compendium of short stories about Michigan aviation. And I think what the origin was, my volunteer work at the Yankee Air Museum in Belleville, where I've been since 2015. I'm a docent there, so I get to talk to lots of guests, and lots of our staff, whether the paid staff or the volunteer staff, have tons of aviation history and background. And I got to think, I said, geez, this, people, this is interesting stuff. So the way I wrote the book, it's not about wingspan or bomb low capacity. You can find that on the internet, and it's not that compelling. But there are so many personal stories about Michigan. It's not a comp- comprehensive A to Z going back to the year 1900, because I'd be writing it till I'm 800 years old, and I'm <laughs> sure. not going to live that long. But uh, what I hope it does is just inform the readers that we've had some remarkable people and events here in the state. And if you're interested in learning more, mission accomplished. And I also try and touch on some of the aviation museums in Michigan. You've got people, if you're paid staff, you're not going to get independently wealthy on the <laughs> aviation museum pay scale. There's mostly volunteers and we've got some super dedicated people that keep these stories alive. And I wanted to highlight that too. So I hope I did a good job with it. Well, I grew up in Ohio and we had frequent trips to the Air Force Museum uh, down in Dayton. So I really just learned Ohio's place in aviation history, which I'll tell you, they are super proud of. Um, sure, and in fact, I'm, I'm related to, to Neil Armstrong. So, uh, so he's part of the family, uh, you know, so what are, what are some of the highlights? It's, it's easy to talk about Ohio highlights with, with John Glenn and Neil Armstrong mm-hmm. and, and the Wright brothers, but, but what are some of the highlights of aviation in Michigan? Well, one highlight, well, I'll give you three. There's, there's many, many more, but uh, I don't want to go on for 10 hours here. <laughs> the Willow Run Bomber Plant, which is in Belleville, Ypsilanti, was agricultural land, apple orchard, wheat field, soybeans, whatever they had. And in 1941, Ford Motor Company, at the direction of the federal government, broke ground on a bomber plant that built 8,600 B-24 bombers, which was a key part of the Allied arsenal during the war. And there's books and literature out there. 
it reads like a novel, just a drama with the Ford family and the government and Henry Ford and Edsel Ford. In the early days, the plant wasn't called Willow Run. It was nicknamed Willow Run because the planes were such poor quality coming off the line. Willow <laughs> Run. But and it's not to knock the people. They had no aviation expertise and they're in this rush mode. But between the military and the government and Ford and the workforce on the line, everyone pulled together and the production problems largely went away and they had a great, great production war record. So that's an incredible story. At the Henry Ford, we have, for example, and I've been there many times as a guest. I've worked there part time starting in 2019. There's a little itty bitty yellow Stinson airplane, monoplane. So one day I started reading the description about it and these two guys... Bill Brock and Edge Lee try to fly that airplane around the world. They took <laughs> off from Dearborn, and they were flying west to east. They made it as far as Tokyo with something like 22 or 23 individual stops. And you look at that thing, and not to take away anything from Charles Lindbergh, who did an amazing accomplishment, but this was it was more than that, because this was around the world and different languages and customs and getting into these countries and getting fuel and the weather, and it just goes on and on and on. And then another thing I like that's a great story is our Michigan Strategic Air Command bases. There were three bases in northern Michigan, one in uh, outside of Marquette, one in Oscoda, and one in Kinchlow, which is just south of Sault Ste. Marie. They're all closed now. The Cold War ended, budget cutbacks, so the last of them were gone by the mid-90s. But the work and service of these men and women, it was mostly men, but they had women in the military by then as well. It was just phenomenal. They had to deal with the Cuban Missile Crisis. They sent crews to Vietnam. They were on these chrome dome missions where they were already fully fueled and loaded up with nukes in the air. So if they got the command from the Pentagon, go fly to Moscow, those guys are on their way. And so it's, and that's just a sample of it. And what I wrote wasn't chapter and verse, year by year by year. I I tried as best I could to capture the essence of the story and why why the reader might want to learn more about it. Yeah. And, and Grosseal seems to have an odd place in that Michigan aviation history, even before the Naval Air Station started and the seaplane base. So Grosseal was home to a workshop or, or development center or, or something like that, that, that built a metal clad Zeppelin. Um, how, did, how did that come to be? It's a great question because it's, to my knowledge, it's the only metal-clad Zeppelin in aviation history. I mean, maybe there's some new ones now, like when Goodyear flies around to football games. But there were two guys. Ralph Upson was an engineer, and a fellow named Carl Fritsch was this kind of like aviation visionary in the early days. And they were in Detroit, and they were able to raise money from people like Henry and Edsel Ford, help fund something called the Aircraft Development Corp., which was a subsidiary or company associated with the Detroit Aircraft Corporation. And the airplanes of the day, this is in the early 1920s, they were very loud. They weren't comfortable. They had short range. They were slow, prone to breakdown. So you can think that a uh, dirigible Zeppelin might be the way to go. So these guys came up with a uh, idea of a metal-clad Zeppelin. ZMC-2 is Zeppelin metal-clad. I, I don't recall offhand where the number two came from. Helium. It's it's for the, the element number. Yeah. Oh, so thank you. So I learned something today. Thank you, <laughs> thank you Ben, for the clarification. That's great. Yeah. So while these guys are thinking about that and trying to raise money for the venture, and they quickly realized that the Army or Navy would be a good, like a good prototype. So the thought was maybe they'd build one. Army and Navy liked it. Maybe they'd order more. Or they could demonstrate to the civilian world that these would be practical. So they got a $300,000 grant from Congress to help build it. While all this is going on, there was a naval base with its origins go back to Belle Isle and Selfridge. 
where there's a teeny tiny naval base and they were started like they fly up from Belleville to Selford. Well, the people in Detroit and probably the people in Windsor too didn't think this was a great idea because it was loud. The airplane might fall out of the sky in their house. So can you please move? <laughs> and one of the, there was a armory. It was called the Detroit Armory. And I guess it was kind of like a warehouse, I guess, for the military. And the commanding officer was a fellow named William Broadhead. And Broadhead's antecedents go back to a fellow named William McComb, sure. who was one of the early settlers of Brosiel. So I don't know. I haven't read it, but logic certainly suggests he would be that Broadhead be familiar with Grossiel and might think it was a uh, good place to be. So another element to this story is Ransom Olds, who helped found the Oldsmobile Motor Company, a very wealthy individual. He had a summer home on Elba Island, which I guess is adjacent to Grossiel. Yep. And he owned a fair amount of acreage on the very southern end of Gross Hill facing down into Lake Erie. So from the Navy's viewpoint, if you want seaplanes, you got water access. You're kind of away from population centers because my guess would be Gross Hill was very sparsely populated back in the 1920s. Absolutely. So they can work in quiet. And for whatever reason, the olds or his descendants wanted I think he was still alive, but maybe the family said, we've got enough business up in Lansing. We've got other things to do. So they sold it. So the aircraft development bought some of the land. And then they paved this 3,000-foot uh, diameter circle that was going to be like a runway and takeoff area for the uh, Zeppelins. Sure. Wayne County paved a 20, uh, like a 20-foot-wide surface road sometime around 1927 or 28. And then the field got covered, but it's really unique. If you look at any photographs from the era, you have the runways are triangular, and right in the center of this thing is a circular it, it may not be unique, but it's got to be pretty doggone close to it. Yeah. And then it, a, uh, a terrific resource for anybody interested in Gross Hill history is a historic museum on the island. People there are super help, helpful. We got uh, archive records. And I got a hold of a book from the people down there by a fellow named Walker Morrow. Now, Morrow was born right around the same time the Wright Brothers first flew. And he wrote an account of his life. And, you know, like anybody, you live long enough, you have ups and downs and good periods and not so good periods. But Morrow worked for the Zeppelin company. So he's one of the guys actually building the thing. So it's really kind of a, a rare first person account of working in a Zeppelin plant in the 1920s. So there's not many human beings then or now that could make such a claim, I don't think. Yeah. So if, if my understanding is right, when they built that Zeppelin, the, the description I read about it was that that they used rivets almost like you would use stitches in a yes. in a fact in a sewing factory. That's uh, exactly right. So so how far how close were those those rivets then? I don't know how close they were, but they were very effective in that the Zeppelin leaked much less helium than a typical fabric covered limp leaked either helium or hydrogen. So I don't think it was perfect. I mean, this is 1920s technology. Right. And one of the engineers designed this riveting machine that you've alluded to, Ben. And they kind of assemble like two upside down teacups in this big hangar, which okay. no, it's no longer standing. But it was right. very, it was, I'm sure it was the t biggest building ever built in Rosiel's history. At least yeah. I, I'm almost certain it was. <laughs> and they assembled this thing and they had visions for additional ongoing Zeppelin production. So it rolls out of the hangar in August of 1929. And of course, uh, two months after August 1929 came October 1929, the Depression. And there were a lot of well known aviators came to see it. Amelia Earhart was on Gross Hill. Charles Lindbergh was on Gross Hill. So, uh, Wiley Post was a well-known aviator of the era who died in a plane crash in Alaska. So there's lots of interest in this thing. And it was, they built it for the Navy. 
It flew successfully to the Navy station in Lakehurst, New Jersey, which I think is somewhere out metropolitan New York City area. And they had visions, but then the Depression hit. hit. Uh, the Zeppelin orders dried up. The Navy budget dried up. And 80s Aircraft Development Company went out of business, victim of the Depression. And the backstory was, when I first started, you had mentioned that it, Gross Hill wasn't in the book. I wish it was. But it's like after I sent the text to the editors... Uh-huh. I started researching Rocille and I said, geez, this would have been pretty good. But it, you know, I started the editorial process. I will say, in a bit of shameless self-promotion, Michigan History Magazine, part of the Historic Society of Michigan, you're going to have an article that I wrote about Grosseal Naval Aviation sometime early 2022. All right. We'll, we'll make sure to highlight that when it comes out. So the thing that, that I'd gotten confused by and, and we sort of hashed out uh, in the past couple of weeks is that that I, I thought that that it was Curtis Wright that had done that. So Curtis Wright had built a hangar, I think, that is still around. And if, I, if I've if i got all the pieces right, um, they actually built the engines for that aircraft. Yeah, they were Wright engines, the same type of engines that the Ford Trimotors used. The earlier one were Wright J5 engines, I think, were, were the two engines that powered the Zeppelin. Okay. Yeah. And that was after Orville Wright had left the company and, and yeah. all that. Yeah, I think so. there was some ill will between Curtis Wright Orville is yeah, and it, and actually between Curtis Wright and Curtis too. So yeah, so yep. my understanding is that was that was not a clean break for either There's, side. So some drama is always good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and of course the Detroit Aircraft Company Corporation had its own had its own drama, and and I was consulting with some folks at the at the museum, and I guess part of the the reason for all this why aircraft was um, those companies weren't all that valuable. They'd been, they'd been traded and closed and all this, I guess uh, the, the federal government had what claimed all the patents for aircraft technology in world war one. So yeah, it sounds right. So how do you commercialize it? Right. And you were Um, at a a point where the commercial aviation industry that we know was just in its early, in its infancy. I mean, the airplanes were dangerous, and they were slow, and they couldn't go very far, so it didn't look like a huge, huge upgrade from trains. The trimotor, which, as like I said, has the same engine that the Zeppelin did, yeah. really was a breakthrough because it really started pointing things in the right direction, saying we could make money here. They tried carrying airmail for a while, but then they had all sorts of air, air, airmail plane crashes in the 20s. I mean, it was up and, and up and down yeah. industry. And then of course the depression turned everything upside down for a while too. Yeah. I remember growing up, I think a trimotor, uh, a trimotor would come and visit our air show at, in Marysville, Ohio. And I think that trimotor was used to pick up kids on uh, like middle bass and South bass Island and take them to school, like in, in Sandusky or something. Oh yeah. There's uh, a whole Island airline. Yeah. Used to fly out in Putin Bay and Putin Bay and the islands out there for years. Yeah. Using a trimotor. Yeah. So we got to see that plane. I, I don't think I ever rode in it. I may have, but that's that's been a long, long time ago. The history then of, of that company. So it went out of business, uh, yep. 1929, 1930, somewhere in that yep. era. Is there anything left of that company or is there anything else that, that the company, Detroit Aircraft Company or? Not that I know of. Just like so many of the early car companies and aviation companies are gone. I mean, the people might have moved on because if they were talented, the aviation industry would be always be looking for talented people. So some sure. of them very likely moved on and had very successful careers. But to my knowledge, the company's gone. The building, when I first I really got excited with this, part of it was used to build a bowling alley in Trenton. 
<laughs> and I got the ad. Said, Holy smokes, what a neat picture. That'd be for the magazine article, but more important than the magazine article, it's just a neat piece of history. Yeah. The bowling alley was torn down. It's oh. a shopping center now, so gonzo. And what's left, the uh, pi- I believe there's a facility on the island called the Pilot House. Yes. It's like a hotel restaurant. Yeah. That used to be the barracks for Curtis Wright had a flight school for a short period of time. Okay. That guy, Carl Fritz, the uh, aviation innovator, he ended up with a group called Le, Le Voyageur, part of my abysmal French accent. Right. So it was not a strength in high school, I can assure you. <laughs> but And then they sold out, and they had a right had a flying school, and they provided service to the aviation industry that existed in Grosseal. But they went away, yeah, but the pilot house remains. So that's standing. Hangar one standing from the Navy days. Right. And then part of it's been readapted. I guess it's the municipal offices for Grosseal Township. That's right. I think that started in 1998 or 99. Yeah. So most of the Navy buildings are torn down, almost all of them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for helping us connect to this obscure history. It's definitely unique to Grosseal. Where have you found photographs? You've, you've talked a little bit about photographs. Is there a place online or? Oh, or- that is a. Uh, that's its own research topic is getting photographs and not only that, and then the copyrights to use it. Oh, sure. Google images is actually a pretty decent source, but for like gross eel history, uh, the Walter Ruther library, that's part of uh, Wayne state university has a number of photographs online. Uh-huh. So the digital images, so you can see them, but if you want to download and print, you got to work out a fee. So that's a little right. bit of a, a pain. The national archives have some gross eel pictures. And because if they're taken by somebody who's in the service, and they're doing their job, it's, the copyright belongs to us, the U.S. taxpayer. Right. And then the Gross Hill Historic Museum, they've got a in-depth series of archives and photographs that are just incredible. I don't know how much, I, you could, wouldn't call it a public research facility, but the people there were very helpful to me. But I don't want to yeah. speak for them as to what public access might exist, but they've got a, quite a collection. Yeah. And as a matter of fact, we'll, we'll get to that because you're going to be speaking with the Historical Society uh, about the yep. Yankee Air Museum on October 3rd. Yep. Uh, you want to share any teasers of anything, any big reveals for what you're going to talk about there? It's about the history of the museum. I wrote a short book that published late 2018 as one of our Arcadia series about the history of the museum. And it's incredible. We've been at it for 40 years this month. September of uh, 2021 is our 40th year in business. We've had ups and downs. We had a a fire destroyed the original hangar, but we've rebuilt. We've been easy to call it quits. But a lot of it talks about the volunteers that we have and their dedication to aviation and history. Talk a little bit about aircraft restoration. Believe me, those guys won't let me turn a wrench in one of their airplanes. But if you've got skill, (laughs) we'd be glad to have you. Talks about our air shows, what we have. And we've had some really interesting aviators and artifacts come through. But I think the best part of the museum is the guests coming through because they've got some stories you just, you know, they're telling the truth, but you just can't believe it. Absolutely. So the air shows are connected to the Yankee Air Museum? They're, we host it in conjunction okay. with Wayne County Airport Authority. But this year, last year, we had no show because of COVID. Right. We had kind of like a drive-in movie style, but it worked very well. We had the Thunderbirds came on. So there's some behind the scenes. We pay them some sort of appearance fee, and then we sell tickets to it. So it's not our airplanes will fly in it, but we invite aircraft operators from other parts of the country to come and fly their airplanes. And you really seem to like it. We've been doing Thunder Over Michigan's the marketing name since '03, yeah. and there are other air shows that will run even before that. So we've got a, there's a long history of air shows. Yeah, out if, at, I, uh, will run. if I remember right, the Thunderbirds and the Blue Angels flew this year. Correct, first time. Yeah. 
I think we got way, the Defense Department gave him a waiver for the two groups to appear at the same show at the same time. Yeah, and then they were all at the Henry Ford Museum for a free yep. autograph signing and, and photo <laughs> event. That was pretty yep. neat. meet and greet. Oh, people love them. And when you see, if you ever have an opportunity to see these guys fly, it's incredible because they're so fast and so close to each other. Perfection's got to be the only acceptable standard if you want to be a Blue Angel or a Thunderbird. That's absolutely. it. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to be the right size and you can't wear glasses. Yeah, yeah, a superb vision, which uh, I know I don't have. Yeah, me neither. Wash right out. Yeah. Well, back to your books. So how, how are your books available? How can we, we get a hold of those? Yankee Air Museum gift shops, one source. Amazon's probably the easiest source to get them. And uh, just either Google search my name, Barry Levine, or Google search Michigan Aviation Yankee Air Museum will come right up. All right. And I suppose you'll have some with you on October 3rd. Certainly. I certainly will. So there's a question I ask every guest that is uh, a question about a wish. So if there, is there a wish that you'd make for, for gross eel or for Michigan or, or uh, any of that, yeah. what's, what's your wish? Health, peace, and serenity for everybody. <laughs> Anybody listening to this, uh, that'd be what I'd wish. Yeah. I mean, we live in troubled times, so something like that can't hurt. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're probably living in innovative times too. The, the innovation that came out of, out of that, that period of the twenties. Oh yeah. Maybe we'll see some of that come in here too. So absolutely phenomenal. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your, your wealth of knowledge about, about the aviation history, the, this obscure history uh, that, that we just happen to have here on the Island. I appreciate, I appreciate you and, and your effort to preserve and organize our region's history. Well, thank you very much, Ben. I appreciate the opportunity. It's fabulous research. I'd encourage anybody to pick up a book and read about it. I really hope a lot of folks get to hear Barry talk about the Yankee Air Museum on October 3rd. Look for links to his books and the Grossiel Historical Society in the episode notes. One thing I did want to add to our conversation has all of my love. When the ZMC-2 was being constructed, it was, as Barry described, like an upside-down teacup. As the show grew taller and taller, scaffolding allowed the builders to install supports inside, or at least that's how I understand it. I imagine it would be like a stairway to heaven. And if you've got a whole lot of love for these song title references, you've already figured out that they relate to the band that played the immigrant song, Led Zeppelin. The band took a derisive comment that it would go over like a lead balloon and history was made. So our story of a metal Zeppelin really needed some lead to go with it. Unfortunately, I couldn't get the rights to Dire Maker for the background music, so I chose something a little closer than what I normally use. I hope you enjoyed it. What's the Deal Gross Eel is produced by me, Ben Fote, and Fote Media Productions, LLC. Look in the episode notes for ways you can subscribe, share, and support the podcast, as well as give feedback. Thank you for listening to What's the Deal, Gross Eel?